Thank you, guys. Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bible, if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 16. Thanks. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming this morning. Be glad to give you one. A number of our folks are on their Memorial Day camping. We should call that um, Bible Fellowship North. Everybody goes to... I forget where they go, Ricketts Glen or something, but I'm sure they couldn't have picked better weather. Well, we've just finished our Advancing the Gospel campaign project, um, and now we're going to return to our study of the book of Genesis. And so I want to start by reminding you that the book of Genesis is a book about origins and about God's purposes in the world. And we saw that there's four sections to Genesis. It begins with creation. And it gives us a credible explanation for where we came from. And then chapter 3 talks about the fall of man. It talks about the entrance of sin into this world, original sin, which explains so much of why the world is the way it is. And the manifestation of that fall is corruption. There's all kinds of corruption in the world. You watch it on the news, see it on the television. You see it in your own life and in families and relationships and nations and strife together. And we saw Cain killed Abel. We saw the wickedness of the earth and the flood. So we've got creation of fall, corruption. But then God, as he always does, enters in in his mercy and he creates a nation for redemption. And in many ways, Genesis 12 is kind of like John 3.16 of the Old Testament because God so loved the world that he chose Abraham. And he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation And from your seed, which we learn from the New Testament, which is Christ, I'm going to bless all the nations. And so we're in the midst of looking at the faith of our father Abraham, and we're learning what it looks like to walk with God by faith. And one of the things that we learn from walking with God by faith is that we're going to be tested and we're going to face problems. And so this morning we're going to talk about spiritual problem solving. It's interesting as you watch educational trends. Think back, some of us, when when we were younger, it was really important to memorize those fundamental things like the basics of reading, writing, and arithmetic, to lay that foundation. And and, and over the years, different things have become important, you know, making sure every kid is emotionally stable. And one of the the buzzwords was problem solving. You know, kids need to learn not just to, to do their algebra, but they need to learn how to problem solve. And I'm in favor of that because reality is much of life involves problem solving, right? But when you think about problem solving, often what we think of when we think of solving is how to end the problem and get out of the problem. Whatever it takes, get out from under the pain. But what we're going to learn from the Bible is that spiritual problem solving is a very different way of looking at and facing difficulties in our lives. So we're going to look in chapter 16, and we're going to see Abram created a very difficult situation for himself because he didn't practice good spiritual problem solving. So let's pray, and we'll, we'll look at this passage. Lord, today we want to come to your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who has inspired the word and makes it come alive to us. And so I pray that your word will encourage us, strengthen us, 
feed us, reprove us, maybe even save people this morning who are visiting or who have not yet come to Christ. But thank you that when we meet in your name, Jesus, that you promised that you would be in our midst. And so we ask for your blessing and for your spirit to visit our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at the problem. It's found in verse 1. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now that's a great problem because God had on several occasions said, Abram, I'm going to make a great nation for you. So we've got a problem, Houston. Time is running out. Abraham's getting older. He's getting into his 70s. He's been in the promised land for 13 years, and he still has no child. And it's at this point when Abram and Sarah decide that they're going to practice a problem-solving solution that's going to haunt them the rest of their lives. So let's look at what happens in verse 2. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please, go into my maid, and perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. Now, we look at that, we go, are you kidding me? You can't have kids, so you just tell your husband, well, just marry somebody else. But I want to give some, some background to this. Archaeologists have discovered clay tablets that were written during this period, and it, it's pretty clear from that time period that this was a common cultural practice. This was not something that came out of left field. This is what they did. This was normal, standard behavior. It was very important to build up your posterity and to leave descendants. And so if you couldn't have them, you married one of your, your maids. It was normal, right? Not necessarily biblical, but it was a normal thing to do. And it, it's something to think about that many times when we encounter problems right? We just do what everybody else does. We look for the normal way out. We often do what the Bible says not to do. Don't be conformed to this world. The Bible also says, don't listen to the counsel of the ungodly. So, she proposes this idea, and look at verse 2. It says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, I don't know exactly how to take that. Was this a, a, a hearty approval, like, great idea? Was this a reluctant, I don't know if this would be the best thing to do, but, you know, that's really what you want to do. We do know this, the last time a man listened to the voice of his wife when she gave him bad advice didn't um, end up so well, right? I mean, it's not that far back in Genesis, and all the guys are going, see, see? No, it's not about that, because that, it goes both ways. But sometimes even our own spouse will suggest a solution to a problem that involves compromise, or, or we haven't really thought it through or prayed about it. And so I think what we're seeing here is that, that the Spirit of God has, has led <clears throat> Moses, to, 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 to show Abram's passivity, he listened to the voice of Sarai, and we're going to see his passivity in just a moment as well. So, verse 4 says, 
And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. Now, man, we see something about human nature here. The Bible says in Proverbs, a man is tested by the honor given to him. I want you to think about this. We don't know how old she was. We don't know a whole lot about her. But, but think of what Hagar's normal life was. They're, they're living nomadic lifestyle, out in tents, wandering around. Abram's very wealthy, so there's plenty of work to do. She's, she's probably either been taken or sold away from her parents. We don't know when she left Egypt, but she probably has memories of Egypt. So she's away from her family. She's not exactly in a stable, secure, walled-in town. She's got a rough life, right? And she's really got nothing to look forward to. And she's just gone about her daily business when she's told, hey, you know, you're going to become my husband's wife. You're going to have a kid, and it's going to be my kid, right? So what happens? God allows her to conceive. And the text says her mistress was despised in her sight. It's interesting. In the original language, it says... She became small in her eyes, right? So, so here was Sarai. The word mistress comes from a word that can be translated queen. Here's Sarai, the important, larger-than-life mistress, her boss, who can have kids. And now she's going to have Abram's kid. And suddenly, whoop, Sarai shrinks in her eyes. And when you look at that, you go, well, you know, I mean, what's wrong with that? But what I want you to see here is that this was pride. When she began to despise her, right, that's where our human nature sometimes causes us to exalt ourselves over to others, okay? And so this, this haughty spirit that was creeping up inside of her was beginning to manifest itself because now she's insulting and being rude and making Sarai feel humiliated, which is what we sometimes do. We take advantage of opportunities like this, and we have to be very careful not to allow pride, and I'm going to tell you why as we go on, why I think this was pride more than anything else. But look at verse 5. Sarai said to Abram, now can you imagine this dinnertime talk? You know, whose idea was this in the first place? This was her idea, but now look what she says. Sarah said to Abraham, may the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, and when she saw that I had con- she had conceived, I was small in her sight. And notice, sometimes when, when we're really pushing somebody, we bring the Lord into it. May the Lord judge between you and me. You know, it's just sad sometimes. People can just have a bad attitude, but boy, they're quick to call on the Lord. That's self-righteousness. Me and God decided. We, we love to help the Holy Spirit when, when we think we're right. It, you know, the reality is here, that, that's a little bit unfair, you know? And, and yet, Abram perhaps could have said, wait a minute, this was your idea. And what do you expect? She's a poor little maid. I mean, give her a break. But instead, verse 6 says, Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid's in your hand. Do what's good in your sight. Now again, that's where sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you want to read carefully and think, what what did he mean by that? Did, did, Did he mean by that, that's not my problem? Or did he mean by that, hey, I respect your judgment. If she's causing problems, then, 
you know, you, you need to correct her, you need to deal with it. But, but, but I can't help but again sort of see a little bit of passivity here. Hey, you know what? Deal with it. So notice how Sarai dealt with it. It's an old adage that goes like this. Hurt people hurt people. So now she's insulted. She's mad. She's feeling degraded. Somebody's going to pay for this. So the text says, so Sarai treated her harshly. Or some translations say mistreated her. Now, interestingly, the, the Hebrew word here means to humble. She humbled her. In fact, later on, God's going to give this maid advice, and he's going to tell her to humble yourself. And go back, same Hebrew root. But however she humbled her, in this context, it seemed to have inappropriate connotations, right? She could have handled this by correcting her, perhaps having to discipline her, but it seems to be that the, the root of this word has the idea in this context of mistreating her. What did that look like? Did she beat her? Did she, <clears throat> did she make her, you know, because think about it. She's pregnant. She's probably got morning sickness. Her life is already hard enough, and she has her normal chores. Is she just pouring it on? Is she just, and don't you think you're ever going to be anything but a servant, right? She's just treating her like junk, right? And... Again, we just see all of these human ways that we naturally react to problems. So, Hagar has an idea. Oh, no, no, I don't deserve this, right? So look what she does. She decides to run away. The text says, and she fled from her presence. I wonder if she had thought through what this was going to look like. Okay, no money, no protection, and where's she going to go, right? They're living like nomads in the middle of the promised land. Well, we learn from the text that she's fleeing to Egypt, okay? Now, the, the pathway between Jerusalem, or, the, or at least Canaan to Egypt, the book of Deuteronomy calls that the fierce wilderness full of scorpions, snakes, and drought or dry seasons. So, wait, you're pregnant, you're destitute, and you're going to run away, I wonder how far she got into it. You remember back when you were a kid with your little stick and your little bandana? I don't need this, right? You know, did you get to the train station? But she got pretty far. But I think she was running out of steam quickly. But again, that's just another example of sometimes that's what we do. We hit a, a relational conflict, and we're like, I don't need this. I don't need this aggravation. Or, I quit this job. Well, wait a minute, you don't have another job. Oh, I don't care. Nobody's going to treat me like this. And we react in unbiblical, unchristlike ways. So, this lady's in a pickle, right? Everybody's in a pickle. Abram's in a, hey, not, we just lost one of our servants, right? Well, it's not my fault. You, you, it was your idea. And she's, right? And what does God do? God is so good. He's so gracious. Sometimes we make a mess, and then God comes along, not even because we ask him, but in his grace and his mercy and his desire to be a part of our lives and to draw us to himself, he comes and finds us in the midst of our mess. And so that's, that's the turning of the text. Look at verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. Now, this is a really interesting 
phrase here, the angel of the Lord. And some of you have, have read this before. Some of you, you know, you've read about angels. First of all, if you haven't read the Bible, you might as well just blank out everything you know about angels because it's probably nonsense, right? Little naked budded babies and stuff like that. That's totally unbiblical. There are different types of angels in the Old Testament, but when you read the phrase, the angel of the Lord, this, this Hebrew word, malak, is, is, is a messenger or an angel. And when it has this idea, my personal opinion is that it's probably the Lord himself. So, so just make a note of that. When you're reading the Old Testament, when it says, and the angel of the Lord. Now, not everyone agrees with that, but I'll, I'll tell you why. So throughout the Old Testament, we'll have these frequent appearances where the angel of the Lord will show up. But when the encounter is over, the person will say, I just saw God. Or the angel of the Lord will speak in terms of something that God would say, not just an angel. And so theologians sometimes call this a theophany. Theos means God, and epiphany means an appearance. So it's an appearance of God in the Old Testament, a theophany. And so, for example, in Genesis 32, it says, Jacob was left alone at night, and suddenly a man appeared to him, and he wrestled with him all night, and he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And, and we see that that was an appearance of God. We read in the book of Joshua. Remember the battle of Jericho? He walks around the city of Jericho to do some reconnaissance spying, and he sees a man all by himself, and he says, are you for us or against us? And the man says, neither one. I'm a captain of the Lord's hosts. Now take off your shoes for the ground on which you're standing is holy. And so these appearances of God, and I'm going to suggest that this was the Lord himself, but I think we can be even more specific. It's not just the great living triune God, but I think personally that these appearances of God are actually the Lord Jesus. And so some, some theologians call it a Christophany, an appearance of Christ. Now you might say, well, how do you know it was Jesus? How do you know it wasn't the Holy Spirit? Well, there's a little verse in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that says this. No man has seen God at any time. Now the reason no man has seen God at any time, we learned that way back in Exodus when Moses asked to see God. The scripture says, no man can look on God and live. So in all of his fullness, the triune God dwells in unapproachable light and holiness. He told Moses, my glory would consume you. So God can't reveal himself in all of his fullness. But John 1 says, no man has seen God at any time, but his only begotten son, Jesus, he has revealed him. And so my suggestion is that whenever you read the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that these are appearances of Jesus coming down to speak into someone's life. Now, Jesus was not a man then. He took on the appearance of a man. He was not human at this point. It wasn't until the virgin birth that the word became flesh. But what we have here is people in a mess and Jesus showing up. And that's what he loves to do. And that's the same Jesus that wants to show up in our mess. And notice, it doesn't say anything about her seeking him. It's the Lord found her. So let's look at how Jesus deals with her because this is a great illustration for what we ought to do as we encounter problems. So she, the, the angel of the Lord says to her, verse 8, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, God often asks questions to which he already knows the answer. Remember Genesis, Adam, where are you? Like he didn't know. And did you eat the tree? These are profound. These two questions are profound. 
not just for her specific situation, like where have you come from and where you're going, because God draws out confession. He wants us to be honest. But, you know, as I, as I was reading this, I thought, what profound life questions these two questions are. What would it be like to sit down with every one of your loved ones and say, I have two worldview questions for you. Where have you come from? What do you believe about where you've come from? And what do you believe about where you're going? Have you ever thought about that? Now, the Christian worldview says, I know where I've come from. Psalm 139 says, I was formed by God in my mother's womb. It also tells me why I'm here. But if you're a believer, we also know where we're going. We know that we're bound for the promised land, that we're headed for the kingdom of God. But do you realize how many millions of, billions of people on this earth walk around and they don't have the right answer to those two most important questions of life? Think about the people you know that have no idea why they're here. They're really not sure how they got here. I mean, they were told they came from Cro-Magnon man, and they certainly don't have a clue where they're going. And the sad part is, some of them don't care, some of them don't want to think about it, and others love darkness rather than light, and they'd rather trade their souls to have life's pleasures. But this is where you and I come in, because as servants of Christ and, and ambassadors for Christ, we can engage people and ask the same questions. Hey, you know, where are you going with your life? What, what do you think you're here for? How do you think you got here? And where do you think you're going? But what the Lord was trying to draw out from her was an honest confession. When David confessed his adultery, he said, Lord, you desire truth in the inner man. And so David just poured it out. I committed adultery, Bathsheba. And so what we find here is that Hagar was very frank. She didn't make any excuses. She was very forthright. Verse 8, she says, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Now, again, if she had put that on Facebook, I can imagine she would have got a lot of likes. You go, girl. Don't you let... Who does she think she, she, that jealous just because she couldn't have kids? You have every right. You go start your own life, right? But God's ways aren't man's ways. And the Bible says the word of God is profitable for correction and teaching and training. And I want you to look at the Lord's answer here because it's very, very, very profound. Look what the Lord says to her. Verse 9. Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Wait, what? The Lord himself appears and finds her. And in his love for her, Jesus says, what, what, what are you doing here? And she tells her story. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back home. Are you kidding me? Do, do, do you know how she treats me? Can you imagine? Do you think she's going to be waiting like, oh, Hagar, I miss you so much. Come on in. Tell me all about your time in the wilderness. Have some more porridge, honey. Right? This would be very humiliating. This would be very painful. This would be difficult to, to say, I was wrong. This is what biblical repentance is. It's a willingness, like the prodigal son. The prodigal son who says, he came to his senses. And he said, Father, I've sinned. And he returns, I'm no longer worthy. And then he's welcomed with forgiveness by God. And so this is what God sometimes asks you and me to do. He asks us to humble ourselves, to admit that we were wrong. Sometimes a child has to humble themselves and say to their parents, you know what? I'm sorry, mom and dad. I have not been listening to you. 
Sometimes a spouse has to humble themselves and say to the other spouse, I apologize. I've been wrong here. I've sinned, and I want to ask your forgiveness. But you go, well, nobody should be a doormat. Well, the text says, submit to her authority. And again, this is an example of what I call spiritual problem solving because the world would never tell you to do that. They would say, you do your thing. Everyone deserves to be happy. But I want you to listen to a very, very interesting passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's a very profound later revelation that speaks directly to this issue. And I want you to think about the next time you're in a difficult situation, whether it's with your parents, with your spouse, with your boss, with the authorities over you. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And then we can hear the world saying, Respect is earned. I don't have to respect someone until they earn my respect. And I go, oh, really? Is that what the Bible says? Is love earned? Do I not have to love my spouse until she earns my love? So listen, be submissive, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Sometimes teenagers say, my parents are jerks. They're so hypocritical, or they are so old-fashioned. Listen, this finds favor with God. If for the sake of our conscience toward God, we bear up under sorrows when we suffer unjustly. For what credit is there, Peter says, if when I sin and I'm harshly treated and I endure that? But, but he said, now listen, if you do what is right and you suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And, 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 and I can imagine we're going, yeah, well, that's easy for him to say because he's just sitting up there in heaven and all his comfort, everybody's praising him. If he was down here with the people that I have to deal with, it would be very different. You're going, really? Read the next verse. For you and I, Christians, have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for us, leaving an example for you and I to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile back. When he suffered, listen, when he suffered, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Can you imagine if Jesus took this attitude? I don't deserve this abuse, and I'm not going to take it. But Christ gives us an example of saying, sometimes life is unfair, but the call of a Christian is not to to simply say nothing, but to be willing to endure difficulties and afflictions and to not immediately exit anything that's difficult or take, off our, take out our wrath on others, but rather, like Christ, to humbly and submissively be willing to endure for the sake of the gospel because it brings God's favor and it brings his blessing. And then the Lord, in his mercy, promises a wonderful blessing to Hagar. Go back to Genesis 16 in verse 10. So, so the Lord says, now here's what I want you to do. You got to go back to a difficult situation. Humble yourself. And that's what's interesting when it says submit to her. That's the same word, ana, humble yourself. It's the same word that was used of Sarai humbled her. And now God says, go home and humble yourself. Submit. So listen to the blessing the Lord promises. 
I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Now think about this poor girl. She has probably not a whole lot of hope of ever being married, ever having kids, ever having a life, ever seeing her family. And God says, you're going to have so many kids that at your family reunion, you're going to empty Walmart just to supply for it. You're going to have so many seed, right? And then, and then God says, let me tell you about that baby you're going to have. He gives her a spiritual sonogram. He says, it's a boy. And let me tell you about him. It's really interesting. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you're with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. The word Shema means to hear in Hebrew, and El means God. So call him Ishmael, God hears, because the scripture says, God has Shema'd your affliction. El Shema'd you. So Call him Ishmael, God hears. And as I thought about that, I thought, wow, what a profound thing that God both sees and hears me in my pain. So this morning, whatever your spiritual problem that you're facing, maybe you're not facing any right now, but keep this in the back of your mind, that others around you are, or you will be facing problems. Remember that God sees your affliction, that he hasn't, that he hasn't turned away. He hears your cry. He hasn't forgotten you. And sometimes he's asking us to wait and not take matters into our own hands. And then, before she has time to breathe, God says, but let me tell you about this son of yours from whom you're going to have tons of descendants. He will be a wild donkey of a man. I learned a new word. Here's your new word this week. Onager. O-N-A-G-E-R. It's a word for, for a wild donkey. It's described in the book of Job. He despises the city. He just runs around wild. You're going, wait a minute. You're going to have a kid? Yeah. And he's going to be a wild man. Oh, you mean he's going to be all boy? No, no, no. Way more than that. He's not just going to be all boy. This dude's going to be a problem. Well, what do you mean he's going to be a problem? Well, look what it says. It says, his hand will be against everyone. So this nomadic, wild man will begin to be the father of the Arab race, right? And that there will be a continual Arab-Hebrew conflict that's still going on today. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. That was a lot for her to take in. But here she is in the presence of God. Now, I think she knew this much. That to see God meant you're going to die. And the fact that she just saw and heard from God and didn't die and was found and comforted by the Lord touched her so much that verse 13 says, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, thou art a God who sees. One of the things I want to encourage you if you've never done this, a wonderful study is to do a study of the names of God in the Bible. God has a whole lot more names than God. And so as you go through the scriptures, the the word El or Elohim is is a root that's often used and then they attach other words to it. For example, some of you have heard Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah was was the personal name for God, Yahweh, the the everlasting God, the I Am. And, And so Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, or Jehovah Nissi, 
or Jehovah Shema, or, or Jehovah Tzidkenu, the Lord my righteousness, the Lord my banner, the Lord my healer. But here, this one, El Roy, the God of seeing, the God who sees. And that's cool because when you think about it, God's desire for us as Christians is to spend our whole life getting to know him better. Becoming a Christian is not just getting Ponce de Leon's fountain of life. Drink this and you have eternal life. Jesus described eternal life not just as quality or quantity, but quality. It's a relationship with God. It's a relationship in which I, when I first become a Christian, the Bible says, I have come to know him. But then I spend the rest of my life getting to know him more deeply. Jesus said it this way, Father, John 17, 3, of all you've given me, I've given them eternal life, and this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God. And so the apostle John was so touched by this when he wrote 1 John. As he ended the book of 1 John, he said, Jesus, the Son of God, has come and has given us an understanding so that we might know him. This is the true God in eternal life. And I want to encourage you that the greatest thing in life is to get to know God better, to get to know Jesus better. He's the one that satisfies. He's the one that gives us purpose. He's the only one that comforts us in a way that no one else can. He's El Roy, the God of seeing. As I looked in a commentary, Kyle and Dalich, they brought out something interesting. They said, you know, the God of seeing could have two possible meanings here. Either... It could be God allows himself to be seen. He's the God of seeing. In other words, he's a revealing God. He wants people to come to find him. Or he's the God who sees us. And probably it could be a little bit both. both, Probably more the latter here, though. But it was interesting. This week, as I mentioned, my grand children arrived and they're living with us now. My, my son-in-law is arriving today after 30 hours of driving two do- dogs across America. But my little granddaughter, I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, if you bring them up, I said, I- I'd love to be able to pour into them and to help to raise them for Christ. And so every opportunity I can, Deuteronomy 6, when you're lying down, when you're walking by the way, speak the words of Christ. And so I was talking to her the other day and I said to her, you know, Jesus doesn't like when you do that. Jesus saw that. And she looked at me and she said, I don't want Jesus to see me. And I thought, you know, sometimes I don't either. But the reality is, he does. But you know what? When you grow up, there will come a time in your life where you will want Jesus to see you. And you will be going through something and you will be going, Lord, I am hurting. But you're Elroy. And if you're the God who sees, if you're the God who came to Hagar in her affliction, you're the God who hears, the God who cares, then, Lord, I'm going to bring my affliction to you, and I'm going to call upon you. And so she says, I have remained here alive after seeing him. Therefore, the name of that well was called Be'er Lahai Roy, which commentaries had all kinds of possible meanings for that. I have seen him who looks after me. I have now seen the one who sees me. The NIV says, but... Whatever the idea is, she was touched by the fact that God saw and heard her in all of her pain. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son Ishmael, and Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So you go, all right, so what do I learn from problem solving here? Number one, 
Whatever your problem is this morning, it might be a financial problem. It might be a relational problem. It might be your problem is because you, you, you made a bad decision. Think about how many times we make bad decisions. Half the time, it happens every day when we eat. Why did I? Oh, I should have I gone with that light menu. You know, I could have had a V8. And then it just goes, then, then, then the stakes get higher. You know, why did I move? Why did I change schools? Why did I choose that friend? Why did I marry this person? Why did I choose this church? And frequently we get into these situations where we're like, all right, well, then we got to get out of this, okay? The first thing we learn about spiritual problem solving is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Satan and all of his friends will be happy to offer you quick suggestions as to how you can get out the back, Jack, make a new plan, Stan, and you could just move on with your life. But biblically, that just blows up in our face. So whatever your issue is today, the first thing is to not immediately seek to say, whatever I have to do to get out from under this, especially if it's painful, but rather to say, God, I want to trust you. This isn't an accident. Even if I got into the situation by poor choices, Lord, what do you want me to do at this point? And help me not to compromise to try to solve it. It could be a sexual decision. It could be an emotional decision. Some of you may be confused. You may feel like, you know, God's not there for me. Or, or why, why am I feeling this pain? Or maybe you have a loved one who's sick. Or, you, or, or you're watching an estranged relationship with one of your kids. Or someone won't talk to you. There's, life is just full of these situations. And the scriptures teach us, trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding. Secondly, recognize that Jesus is the God who sees and the God who hears and the God who wants to draw near to you to help you this morning, whatever your problem is. Now, that doesn't mean that he's necessarily going to remove your problem. In fact, he sent her back to her problem, but with a new perspective. And so we learn from the book of Hebrews that Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our weakness because he was in all points tempted as we are. So we're told in the Bible to draw near to his throne of grace, not so that he can remove the problems. What does it say? So that we might find grace from Christ in our time of need. Grace to help us. And so this morning, whatever you're going through, ask the Lord, Lord Jesus, you see me. Maybe you feel like, man, I'm in a wilderness right now. I've made a mess with my life. He sees you, he loves you, he hears you, and he wants to help you. And so give yourself to him and say, Lord, I want to submit to your word. I want to do what you tell me to do. I want to trust you, and I want you to help me today. Give me grace. We often feel like, I can't take this. That in itself is a lie. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, God will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able, but with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape. So don't lean on your own understanding. And secondly, remember that Jesus sees and he cares. And you cast it on him and you receive help. And then finally, take great courage that our Lord Jesus is always there to find us in our affliction, to find us. And I want you to think of this in two ways. First of all, for some of you, look what it says. Then the angel of the Lord found her. 
I think everybody here knows this song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I found myself. No, but now I'm found. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus is seeking you? He'll find you by the wilderness. He'll find you on the mountains. He'll find you in the cave. He'll find you. He'll follow you. He'll pursue you because he loves you. But he won't force you. He will invite you. And this morning, if you, if you really don't know where you're going, if you stop and think to yourself, you know, if I were to die right now and I stood before Jesus, I don't really know. Then Christ is calling to find you. He's inviting you to come to him. Jesus offers two wonderful solutions to all of our problems. He offers to forgive your sins and he offers to give you the gift of eternal life. But you have to come on his terms. You come in repentance. You come and admit, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. And then you come in faith that when he hung on that cross, that when he shed his blood, he paid the penalty for all of our sins. You don't need to go to purgatory. You don't need to do penance. Christ died for our sins that we might be forgiven. And, and God has to open your eyes to realize that you're lost. And when you come and you believe and you invite Christ into your life, you once were lost, but now you're found. If you don't have that assurance this morning that you've been found, then this morning, come to Jesus. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. The best you know how in your seat. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I don't understand everything, but I feel like you're speaking to me, and I get it. And this day, I want to surrender to you. I want to be found. I want to be forgiven. I want to become your follower. I want to start fresh. And Christ will meet you where you are. But you know, isn't it sad that we as Christians need to be rescued at times? The songwriter said it this way. Though I forget him and wander away, still he is with me wherever I stray. Back to his dear loving arms I would flee when I remember that Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, yes, he loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Yes, he loves even me. And maybe you've wandered away. You say, oh yeah, I'm saved. But far as like following him and being submissive to him, and being obedient to him, I kind of lost my way. Jesus said, all who come to me, I won't cast them out. He's not going to kick you to the curb. He's not through with you. He's just meeting you at your spring and saying, have you had enough doing it your way? Come and follow me. Take my yoke upon you. Come and learn from me. Come and be a disciple. Come and surrender to me and let your life be different. I'll bless you. I'll keep you. I'll strengthen you. I want to use you. I want to heal you. I want to lift you up in your brokenness. Will you come to Jesus? And if you're, you're walking with him, just think of all the people whose lives are feeling pain. That's what we're here for, to minister to one another in the community, to build each other up, to bear each other's burdens, to help each other not to give up, not to go back to the world, not to return to our old ways because it's not working out. And so I want to invite you to join me in prayer as we take a few moments to talk to the God who sees our blessed Lord Jesus. As you bow your head, if you've been doing some spiritual problem solving and you've made some mistakes, right now, just ask the Lord to forgive you. He's so gracious.
If we confess our sins, ask him to forgive you for going your way instead of his way. Maybe your pride has kept you from admitting you're wrong, but today you want to do the Lord's will and surrender to him. Maybe you're going through an affliction and your heart is breaking and you feel like God has forgotten you. Remember Ishmael, God hears. Remember Elroy, Jesus sees and he cares for you. So draw near to him. Give him your burden today. Give him your trouble. Don't carry it a day longer. Maybe you're here today and you feel the Lord calling you to to come to salvation. Right there in your seat, the best you know how. Just tell the Lord Jesus, you do believe that he died for you. You do believe that he's speaking to you and that you want to be his follower. From this day forth, you trust him as the one who was crucified to bring you to God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, I thank you for our church family and I thank you that one day our faith will be sight and we'll no longer have to go through this world of trouble and affliction. Lord, we'll we'll be in the kingdom of God where there's no more sorrow, no more pain. The former things will all pass away when Jesus comes back. But today I pray that you will be our shepherd, Lord Jesus. But also help us to be a comfort and a shepherd to one another. Lord, you know that all of our lives have areas of pain and brokenness that we all need your help. And I pray, Lord, that this word of the Lord, this comfort from this passage, Lord, will be our strength this week and that we will continue to look to you who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, build us up. Help us to go out and seek those who are lost and those who are struggling within our flock. Lord, would you minister to them your peace, your joy, and your strength. God, bless us today and help us to be a witness for you And thank you for the word of God. And we rejoice in our Lord Jesus, our coming Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. And we'll look forward to seeing you all next week. Be sure to read Genesis chapter 17 for next week.